Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're continuing our study of what we know as Paul's first letter to the church of God in Corinth. And the occasion for this letter was that the church of God in Corinth, in this sophisticated cosmopolitan city, was that they were in trouble. The church was divided. It was full of contention, enmity. And as we discussed last time, these divisions were the result of the Corinthian believers acting immaturely. They were acting like spiritual babies, babies in the faith. That's what Paul says of them in the first portion of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. And what evidence does he give for this conclusion? Well, he says that there is strife and jealousy among them. The fruit of their behavior, of their immature hearts, was a contentious, embittered, envious, hostile environment in the church. And each of these fruits grew from their root of common immaturity. They were fussing and fighting over several different issues, but particularly over their ministry leaders. Thus, in the text that we'll look at tonight, Paul seeks to correct the Corinthian church's view of their leaders. They were guilty of wrongly esteeming or wrongly evaluating their leaders, not properly evaluating who they were and what they were doing. And thus, Paul seeks to correct them with a proper estimation and value of their human leaders and of God. And so let's look at our text and hear what the Holy Spirit wanted the church in Corinth to hear and what the Holy Spirit indeed wants for all of us to hear tonight in 1 Corinthians. These words are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God Himself and thus carry the same authority as if Jesus was standing up here speaking them to you. And so let's focus on God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll focus on verses 5 through 9, but I'll I'll start in verse 1. Hear the Word of our Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our great giver of life, our leader, our architect, our master and Lord, we ask that you would speak through your word tonight, that you would teach us, that you would help us to see Christ, to see him rightly, to see who we are, in light of who Christ is and what he's done for us, that you would build us up. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I have two main things for us to see. The first 
is Paul's description of human leaders, and the second, Paul's description of God. Paul's description of human leaders and Paul's description of God. Let's look at verse 5 and see how Paul begins to describe human leaders. He says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Servants through whom you believed, Paul says. We see Paul reminding the Corinthians of the role that their human leaders play. That is, mere servants. Ministers, your translation might say. The word here is the same word we use for deacon. It means a hired worker or even a table servant. The main point is this. However great they may be, they are not the master. They're not the boss. They're not the big guy. They are subordinate. Ministry leaders of any kind are simply table waiters. They're not the main event. They're not to be worshipped, not to be glorified, not to be deified. Because at best, they are a servant of someone and something greater. They are simply servants through whom you have believed, Paul says. They are the messenger and not the sender. They're the vessel and not the life-giving substance. And they are the ambassadors, but not the king himself. That's their role. Subsidiary, subordinate, and servile. And this role as secondary is further confirmed by Paul noting the power of the human leaders. The power of the human leaders. Paul notes again in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. As the Lord assigned to each. You didn't ultimately believe the gospel because of the ability of your leader. It wasn't the power of the preacher It wasn't the winsomeness of your Sunday school teacher. It wasn't the faithfulness of your favorite pastor that made you believe in the wisdom of God. You see, in and of themselves, no human leader has any power to save. Preachers cannot make the Holy Spirit come down and effect heart change. Teachers cannot open blind eyes and replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Ministers are impotent to effect any of these necessary spiritual changes. See, there's no magical power that is mystically conferred when ministers get ordained. They are servants. And Paul, again, confirms this in verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. God did it, and God did it alone. Think with me for a minute. If anybody, other than God, should be able to bring the growth himself, you'd think it would be the Apostle Paul. He had been given all sorts of miraculous gifts. He survived a snake bite on the island of Malta in Acts 28. He raised Eutychus from the dead in Acts chapter 20. It would seem that if anybody would have been able to force the growth to happen, it would have been Paul. But he didn't. And he couldn't. He was innately just like every other minister. Impotent, unable to do anything of lasting spiritual value apart from God's divine action. Which is where Paul comes up with his ranking in verse 7. Look at verse 7 and see how Paul views the ranks of human leaders. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He says neither the planter nor the waterer are anything. They're nothing. Apart from divine action, any minister of the gospel, any preacher, any teacher, any disciple is comparatively nothing. Compared to God's role, we simply fade into the background. We are of last rank. Yes, of course, we work, we strive, we pray, we labor, we teach, we plow, we plant, we water, but only God can give the growth. He is the master, 
and we are the servants. He is of highest rank, and we fall far, far behind. That's how Paul thinks of the ministry of all human leaders. Their role is that of a servant. Their innate power is nothing, and their rank compared to God is last. And so given Paul's understanding, how then do we think ourselves about these things? How are we to evaluate our human leaders? See, usually we fall into one or t- of the other ditches, one of two ditches when it comes to esteeming or regarding our human leaders. It's true in the church. It's true in, for all of those leaders in authority over us. We either over-esteem them or we under-esteem them. We either deify them or we despise them. We either canonize them or criticize them. And both options are in violation of God's law. And both of them produce division and strife, especially in the church of God, just like Corinth was experiencing. Let's look at each of these briefly. To over-esteem our human leaders is to give them credit that really belongs to God. It's to rob God of the honor that is due to Him and give it to a mere man. It's violating the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll give our hearts to a man rather than to God. We can see this in ourselves sometimes when we treat our favorite teacher as if he is actually able to give the growth. We dote on his every word. We treat our favorite preacher as if it is his word that actually feeds us and not God's word itself. We have more eager anticipation to hear from the man than we do to hear from God himself. Or sometimes this overestimation of our leaders looks like this. We fail to apply the same standard of faithfulness to him that we would to everyone else. You see this in politics all the time. We blast the other party's guy because of some failing, but then we sit awfully silent when our guy commits the same sin. This behavior happens in the church too. We can minimize and overlook the sins of our guy simply because we think he's the best. We can sinfully invest our devotion and our affection into a human personality rather than investing our whole person, heart, mind, soul, and strength, into God and God alone. That's what the Corinthians were doing, and that's what we can do if we're not careful. That's one of the ditches, one of the problems. The other ditch, the other trap into which we can fall is failing to rightly honor those that God has placed in authority over us. So rather than over-esteeming our human leaders, like in the first ditch, we can run off the other side and under-esteem. It's violating the fifth commandment of God's law. We fail to honor those leaders who God has placed in authority over us. It could be our parents, our teachers, our boss, our civil leaders, or our pastors. And when we fail to honor these human leaders, we are failing to honor God by honoring those people that He and His perfect wisdom has placed over you in authority in this moment. So practically, what might this look like? Well, not honoring our leaders can take several different forms. Sometimes it's sitting back and just nitpicking. It's being overly critical, treating them as if they never get anything right, those boneheads. They would just ask me. I'd tell them how to do it all right. Sometimes it's failing to encourage and pray for those in authority over you. How many of us 
pray regularly for our civil leaders outside of the corporate prayer meeting on Sunday nights? Probably not very many. How often do we intentionally encourage our parents, children? How many of us encourage our teachers, encourage your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your leaders? The Westminster Assembly went even further with the fifth commandment. They included as a duty implied in the fifth commandment the obligation to protect the reputation of those in authority over you. That's right. The obligation to speak well of and appropriately defend the reputation of those in authority over us, they would say is comprehended within the command to honor your father and your mother. Isn't that a foreign concept to our world today? It's question 127 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. I wonder how often you not only speak well of your civil authorities, but you actually defend their reputation. The mayor, the governor, the president, regardless of who's in office, you're called to honor them. How often do you speak well of your teacher? Or your parents? Or your church leadership when they're not around? Or if one of your co-workers is speaking ill of your boss when they're not around, what do you do? If one of your siblings is bad-mouthing your parents, are you quick to appropriately defend your parents and defend their reputation? It's tough. If you're like me, you find that it takes no effort at all to slip into critical speech and negativity about those that are above you. It actually feels quite natural to nitpick and to criticize and to point out flaws. My mind seems wired to sniff out what appears to be hypocrisy and to thrust it into the light for examination and ridicule. I find it much, much harder to encourage, to speak well of somebody when they're not around, especially if I don't, disagree, if I don't agree with their decisions. But that's what we're called to do, honor our leaders, even if I might not agree with every aspect of their decision. If you'll admit me a little artistic license, I'd like to take some of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount and apply it here, twist it a little bit. We're called to honor our leaders in every lawful way, even if we don't agree with every decision that they make. And to take Jesus' words... For if you only choose to honor those that you agree with, aren't you behaving like the Gentiles? Even the tax collectors honor those that they deem worthy of honor. And if you submit only to those that you deem worthy of submission, aren't you behaving like the pagans do? Even they will submit to those that they deem worthy of such submission. You must be perfect in honoring, even as Christ was perfect. That's what we're called to do. To rightly esteem and honor our leaders, especially in the church. Not worship them, not deify them, but honor them. And I am so thankful to God that my security, my salvation, is not dependent upon my ability to rightly esteem my human leaders. My salvation, the gospel says, is that Christ has perfectly esteemed his human leaders and his heavenly father, and he has done so in my place. He perfectly kept the first and greatest commandment and loved his heavenly body with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength at every moment. He never once placed a man above God in the scales of his heart. 
He never once failed to do all things for the glory of His Father in heaven. And not only that, He perfectly fulfilled the fifth commandment as well. For example, the Gospels recount that He honored and cared for His parents. He even took great pains to ensure that His mother was cared for while He hung, bruised and bloody, dying on the cross. He even submitted to human rulers, even those that acted in less than honorable ways, and He did so for the joy set before Him, Scripture says. And He did all this while also being willing to die in my place. My sin, my inability to rightly esteem my leaders, my failing to rightly love God and instead choosing to love men rather than God, my unwillingness to keep the fifth commandment had earned me the just wage of death. And each of us have done this. We've earned a first-class ticket to hell. But Christ died. And He died in the place of His people. He took our punishment. As the song says, He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Do you know that grace? Have you experienced the truly liberating grace of Jesus Christ? His grace can be with you. It can be yours this very night. You must only come to Him and believe. Believe He is the Son of God. Believe that He came to save sinners. Believe that His death was sufficient to atone for your sins. Believe that He was crucified on that cross, buried, and raised again three days later. And by believing, you will have life. You too can have forgiveness and can be cleansed. And if you have been forgiven of your dishonorable behavior, then be on guard against the same temptations to wrongly esteem your leaders. Watch out for the ditches on both sides of the road. Don't put your hope in men. Don't set your affections on any human leader. But also, don't fail to rightly honor the people that God has placed over you. They're in their positions of authority over you according to God's good, sovereign will. And He would have you to honor them. Even if you might not agree, even if you know better, even if you're smarter and better at their job than they are, you're still called to honor and submit to them in all lawful ways. Because rightly esteeming our human leaders brings honor and glory to our ultimate leader, our Heavenly Father. And that leads to our second main point for tonight. Paul's description of God. Paul's description of God. Remember, Paul is arguing against divisions in the church. Divisions that are surrounding varying allegiances to human leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And the especially saintly, I follow Christ. That's what they were saying. And one of, one of the prescriptions that Paul is using to treat this problem is to remind the people of how they should view their human leaders, but also how they should view God. Paul's description of God in this section loosely parallels the description of men in several key ways. For example, as we mentioned above, human leaders like Apollos and Paul were described as having the role of servants. They're ministers. Deacons, table waiters. But contrast that with the role described of God. What does Paul say? He gives him the role of Lord. God's role is Lord, Paul says. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The Lord assigned to each, Paul says. He's the one who assigns life to any who have it. He's the one who sovereignly bestows spiritual sight on the blind. He's the one who opens the ears of the deaf and he makes the lame to walk. 
If the human leaders are given the role of servant, we must remember that God has the role of master. If Apollos is a table waiter, God is the head of the table. If Paul was a lowly subject, God is the sovereign king. And this contrast of roles is fitting, giving their difference in abilities. Remember what we said about the innate power of the servants, of the ministers. They had none. They have no innate ability on their own. They were unable, are able, are unable, excuse me, to fulfill their task. They're unable to complete their mission in their own strength. However, contrast that with what Paul says about God's power. Look at verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is God who makes things grow. God makes the seed sprout. God makes the flower to bud. God makes the fruit to ripen. None of this is within the power of the minister. No slave is able to make the harvest come to fruition on his own. Only the Lord can do that. To use the analogy that Paul uses in the next verse, a farmer can only do so much. He can plow the ground. He can plant the seed. He can sow. He can water. He can tend. He can weed. But at the end of the day, the farmer lays his head on the pillow and he must trust that God will make it grow. The farmer can no more make the seed sprout and grow as you and I can make it rain or make the sun to shine. We can't do it. We do not have the ability. But God does. God is sovereign over the growth. He's sovereign over every stage of development. God elected His people before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians 1. God effectually calls us and He unites us to Christ, His very Son, by faith. He grants us the ability to see and to know and to love this truth and to believe in Christ His Son. That's what we've been talking about in chapters 1 and 2. If you're wise at all, it's because God has revealed that wisdom to you by His Holy Spirit. And then with that same Holy Spirit, He seals us for the day of redemption. And He guides us in holiness, growing more and more every day in the image of Christ. And God will one day glorify us in heaven with Him forever. He is the sovereign one. He is the faithful one. He's the one with all the power. And because of that, He's the one who will end up with all of the glory and praise. It's not Apollos. It's not Paul. It's not John English. It's not Sean. It's God. It's God and God alone. And that's why he has the rank that he has. Unlike our human leaders, which had the rank of nothing, the rank of last, God is given the rank of the preeminent one. He's the preeminent one. Rather than nothing like the human ministers, God is everything. Rather than last, God is first. Rather than being subordinate, God is the superior. And we see this rank flesh itself out in various aspects of His work. In verse 8, we see how God unifies the mission of the various servants. He says, He who plants and he who waters are one. God drives the train. God unites otherwise disparate workers into one singular divine mission. And at the end of the verse, we see how God is the one who gives the rewards for faithfulness. Paul says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. God is the master, the Lord of the farm, the Lord of the harvest. 
And he will reward his faithful workers appropriately on the final day. And we note in verse 9 that God is the one who leads the whole team. Paul says we are God's fellow workers. God is at work. And we're also called to work. All the while remembering he is the one who is in charge. And at the end of the verse, Paul makes clear that God is the one who owns and oversees this entire project. You are God's field, possessive. You are God's building, Paul says. These are themes that I'll continue to unpack over the next few sermons. And so I won't go into detail of each of them tonight. But I want to make explicit here that God's rank in each of these aspects is the supreme one. The highest one. The preeminent one. He's the greatest. He's the controlling one in every good sense of that term. And if that is true, if it is true that God is preeminent, that He has the rank of first and greatest, then that ought to change our lives. That truth ought to impact every area of our existence. God's preeminence is an immensely practical reality. For example... If God is preeminent in our lives, then how could we not speak warmly of Him to others? How could I not want to tell of Him and His grace to my friends, to my co-workers, to my classmates, to my siblings? If God is preeminent, then I ought to esteem as highest His estimation of me and not what others might think of me. Or to put it another way, to use other language from Scripture, if I'm principally concerned with a holy fear of the Lord, then I'll not be distracted by fear of men. The higher I esteem God, the more preeminent God is in my life, the less I will care what others think or say about me. And I'll risk everything for the sake of Him who has given me life and who now occupies the rank of preeminent in my life. Or... If God is truly preeminent in my life, then that should manifest itself in how I spend the resources that He's given to me. My bank account reflects what is prioritized in my heart. And if somebody looked at my statements, would they be able to discern a difference between my priorities and the priorities of some pagan down the street? Would there be any noticeable difference in how I spend my money? But it's not just money. How about a resource even more valuable? My time. We make time for what is important to us. What is important in our hearts. We make time for sports or for our favorite TV show or for our fun hobbies. How much I, of my calendar, when I look at it, how much of my calendar speaks to God being preeminent in my life? Or how much of my calendar speaks to me being preeminent in my life. Brothers and sisters, each of us have been given a miraculous gift. We have been part, made partakers of the divine nature, co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the King of all the universe. We're no longer slaves to sin and no longer under the power of the evil one. And so let us not live as if we still were. And if you have not yet come to Christ... If you have not yet believed, if you have seen within your own heart the temptation to love men more than to love God, to love yourself more than to love God, to fail to retain God as the preeminent one in your life, then Christ stands ready to forgive you tonight. The Bible promises that if we but 
confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Come to Christ this night. Confess your sin. Turn from that sin into Christ and be cleansed of your idolatry. You'll find no better king, no kinder leader, and no more loving Lord. And may we all be ever devoted, ever spurred on, ever faithful to put off the deeds of the flesh and to put on righteousness. To continue to topple the idols that seem to always be clawing their way back up to the place of preeminence in our hearts and instead retain God as our first and greatest love. And as we do that, as we constantly remember that God is in the role of Lord and not me, that God is the powerful one and not me, that God is of first rank and not me, As I remember those things, I'll begin to see the fruit of peaceableness growing within me. The fruit of patient, long-suffering. The fruit of humility. And when God's people are marked with those kinds of fruits, then the church of God will grow in unity and love rather than jealousy and strife that had so marked the church of God in Corinth. To that end, let me pray for us, and then we'll approach the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the gift of life that was given to us because of Christ's faithfulness, because he was willing to come and live the perfect life, to love you with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength in our place, to redeem a bride who had dirtied herself with the filth of this world. Father, we praise you for the gift of the gospel, of Christ himself. Lord, as we come to the table, we pray that you would set these elements apart, that you would use them in a mighty way to remind us, to point us to the truth that was proclaimed tonight, that Christ has died for sinners. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We get to conclude tonight by visibly reminding ourselves of God's role in our lives. We get to partake of the Lord's Supper together and remind ourselves that Christ is Lord that He is the powerful one, and that He occupies the rank of preeminent one in our lives. The Lord's table and the salvation that it pictures reminds us of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says later in chapter 11 of this book. He says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so by approaching the table in faith, we proclaim to ourselves, to each other, and to the world that we are God's people and have been made so because Christ died. He died in our place. And so these elements of bread and, and the cup are pictures of His body and His blood. His body was broken for our sins and His blood was shed that we might have peace with God. This is the foundation. This is the bedrock of any faith, this simple gospel. It was the simple gospel that Paul proclaimed in Corinth, that he built his ministry upon, upon which we build our lives in the simple gospel that we will cling to till the end of the age. Admittance to this table is restricted by Scripture to only those who have come to faith, those who believe in Jesus Christ. If this describes you and you're like the disciples in Acts chapter 2 that were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, if you're devoted to the fellowship of the saints and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come to the table and take with us. 
If you have not yet come to faith and followed in obedience to Christ by being baptized, then let the plates pass. Come to Christ first and then join us at the table. Table servants, please come.